right. Love the time of worship. I thought it was, if I can just put my own few words on it. He is good. He is the king of kings who's conquered the grave and death. And he is worthy. That is an absolutely rock-solid, fantastic context for your life. And I trust that you will continue to recognize that as you just go through your days. It's also a great context for this message. And I'm very thankful for it. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Tommy, even for stewarding over that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get right into it, since we're doing pretty well on time. And I'm going to provide a little bit of context by looking at two descriptions of two well-known characters in the Bible, and the first one is David. And the first verse, first verse about David, the context of this verse is Saul had sinned, God had rejected him as king, David had been anointed by Samuel, and Saul was now beset by a spirit, a distressing spirit, and he needed help. So this is the context of this verse. It's from 1 Samuel 16, 18, and it says, Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. This is what was said of David. And bear in mind, this is before he had fought with Goliath. But he was described, notably, which struck me, he was described as a man of war. Contrast that now to Solomon. And I, unfortunately, I didn't have the entire section, so I'm going to read it before we get to the verse that I put on the slide. But in First Chronicles 22, starting at verse 6, David is speaking of his son Solomon and to his son. It says, Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and there have made, and have made great wars, and you shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. And now, verse 9. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give him peace and quietness to Israel in his days. Two kings, two very different descriptions of these two individuals. One was spoken of prior to even engaging in what was to see publicly as battle, of David, described as a man of war, and of Solomon, who was on the heels of David fighting those wars, a man of rest. And as it says, I will give him rest from, from all his enemies all around, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. So if I, I pick these two descriptions, these two verses describing two kings that everybody knows, to frame a particular issue, which is wartime versus peacetime. These two kings had different gifts, different callings, and ruled in very different seasons. 
one of war and one of rest or peace. And the interesting question that I wanted to really discuss with you today is, and it's an important question for all of us to answer and assess, which season are we in? Wartime versus peacetime. And there's, of course, many different contexts, be it your family, be it the church, be it a particular country. Yes, there are very different contexts. But the question nonetheless must be answered. Is it wartime versus peacetime? And I will also say as a prelude, it's not necessarily, the answer to that is not necessarily what you want it to be. You have to oftentimes just accept what is. I have a certain opinion upon that, and my opinion could be right or wrong, but what is is the controlling factor, not what I want it to be. And using the, if Josh, if you can put the description of Solomon again, this is what it describes as peacetime. I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. My opinion is that doesn't feel like my life that I'm living in the time that I get to live in, that just doesn't feel like it. You might have a different opinion, but it's not really about opinions, is it? Ultimately, what has to be acknowledged is what is. The reason why I'm broaching the subject of wartime versus peacetime is to examine it for this particular reason, just as an opener, that there is a different style of leadership for different types of season. What you do in wartime versus peacetime is just not the same. The character of the individuals who lead in those times and get to dwell and to affect in those times is distinctly different. I'm not saying anything that's controversial, I think. See, even the world acknowledges this very principle. There's this book that I came across, and it's the title of this is, the author is by Ben Horowitz, and business people are probably familiar with this. And the title of the book is The Hard Thing About Hard Things, Building a Business When There Are No Easy Answers. And he describes in one particular chapter the difference between a wartime CEO and a peacetime CEO. And to put some context to what he's describing, he says to frame what peacetime represents, peacetime in business is generally when a business has a competitive advantage and its market is growing. That's peacetime. Wartime in business is when the business is facing an immediate threat from a competitor, the economic climate, or a major market shift. Two very different contexts of what he describes in the business world of what peacetime looks like versus what wartime. And the CEO that is governing and leading a company in those distinct different contexts are going to operate very differently. And he contrasts that. I thought this was very interesting, so I'm going to throw it, if nothing else, just for humor. This is, so I just picked three, and he had a whole long list. I, I thought these three as an opener would be fun to at least frame the issue. Peacetime CEO spends time defining the culture. Wartime CEO lets the war define the culture. A little bit different. Peacetime CEO strives for a for broad-based buy-in. Wartime CEO neither indulges consensus building nor tolerates disagreements. I'm pretty sure I'm 
stepping on sensibilities because you probably have an opinion of which one you'd like to be living in. Peacetime CEO trains employees to ensure satisfaction and career development. Wartime CEO trains employees so they don't get shot in battle. Just framing the issue. What is, is wartime versus peacetime. And what is will dictate what strategies are probably going to be most effective in terms of your focus and what you actually do and the decisions that you make. Wartime, what typically is on the table is you are facing an existential threat. Not comfortable and certainly not something desirable but what is, is, and what you do in response and in the face of such a time is a little bit different than what you would do during peacetime. David and Solomon, two very different contexts. So I did this just to, in a sense, to frame the issue, to bring it up, put it on the table, now we get to talk about it. But I'm also going to be very careful about how I do this. Why am I going to be careful? Some of you are more wired for conflict than others. Some of you are more disagreeable than others. I'm not saying all of you, I'm just saying some of you. For those that are more wired for conflict, that are more wired for disagreeable, like, yeah, we're going to butt heads on this and I'm okay with that. Well, guess what? When I say wartime, you're like, let's go. Let's you just tell me when, where. In fact, you don't even need to tell me when, where. Just the fact that you tell me that we're in wartime, I feel like I have license to now just go do my thing. Yeah, that, that, well, we're going to deal with that. We're going to deal with that. We're going to deal with that, right? Some of you are like, yeah, I don't want any of that. And don't feel bad about that. I'm just acknowledging and putting on the table the fact that David and Solomon didn't necessarily choose what time they were going to live in. They didn't necessarily choose what gifts they were, in a sense, put in them. And they certainly didn't get to decide their history. And yet, they both were called to lead in very different seasons. God knew. That's why he gave each of them what they needed to govern and lead in those different seasons and times. So, now I know that I really put something on the table that has the potential to have some that are more geared for wartime if you believe it's a time of war. It's like, whoa. <laughs> I'm not looking to do that. I'm doing this in a way that I think is a little bit safer. So there is a term in the legal context, but not solely in the legal world. There is a term called safe harbor. I use this a lot as a term. Some people may not know what I mean when I say safe harbor, but when I say safe harbor, it has a particular meaning, and this is one meaning. A safe harbor is a provision of a statute or a regulation that specifies that certain conduct will be deemed not to violate a given rule. It is usually found in connection with a more vague overall standard. So let me explain what that means. There are many situations that you might find yourself, it could be a regulatory environment, or oh, I don't know, it could be this. 
There's a lot of options about what you think is the right thing to do or what you believe God is asking you to do. And sometimes it's less than clear. It's a little bit complicated. And so sometimes when you're facing what you consider to be uncertain mandates, and you say, well, but we feel also called that we still are going to move forward. And sometimes what you do is what you actually engage in is in the safe harbor, which is like, if I just do this part, it may not be everything, but some of the rest of it may be revealed over time. But the safe harbor, I know, I know it's a good thing for me to be engaged in. It's safe. That's why it's a safe harbor. You're thinking, what, what are we doing today? Right, wartime, peacetime, now safe harbor. Okay. So a safe harbor... Out of all the options that I have, if it were wartime, which I'm more inclined that way, because you know I'm more disagreeable, I'm not going to apologize for that. <laughs> Some people benefit from it. So Luke 1.16, so a safe harbor. Luke 1.16. This is Zechariah speaking over his son, John, prophesying. I just love this particular, just as a very quick side note. What I love so much about this particular prophetic unction over his son, because first of all, a father prophesying over his son is something that is just an amazing thing. But if you know, if you recall the entire context, he didn't really respond very well to when the angel told him, this is what's going to be. And the angel said, yeah, you're going to basically not be able to speak which was probably the great thing because the only thing he could do is mess it up by speaking. So over a number of months' time, nine, month, nine plus months, he's having this word marinate in him about what this child is supposed to be. He's literally marinating in this thing, working it out, but he can't say anything because he can't speak to the point that his tongue gets loose and all of a sudden now, now, I get to say what has been germinating and developing in me for nine plus months. And now you can only imagine the unction and the, the prophetic impetus that was just released in this instant, and this is part of it. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He was quoting Malachi 4 about turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. Another part to frame, what is a safe harbor? God established home slash family before the church. And I just have this thing that, funny enough, I was telling Tommy, I pulled this one part from something I preached uh, literally almost exactly one year ago. I found that interesting. God showed his keen interest in families by forming the home before he made the church. Before he made the church. He wants the same wonderful unity and that recognition of himself which people expect to feel only in the church to also be in the home. That's a pretty challenging thought. So, with these two things, 
I am proposing to you that a safe harbor emphasis, if it were, if you are in agreement or if you believe that in a sense we're in wartime, okay, what's the battleground? Well, there's many options. And sometimes the most convenient ones are not right in front of you. It's the ones that you see that are kind of attractive so you don't have to actually deal with what's right in front of you. And the safe harbor, as I just went through a process to bring us to this point, the safe harbor battleground, homes, marriage, children. Coincidentally, we've been talking about marriage, of course, for the last month or so. I have another quote from that same book, which I thought was interesting when I came, read it. Peacetime CEO thinks of the competition as other ships in a big ocean that may never engage. Wartime CEO thinks the competition is sneaking into the house and trying to kidnap the children. That's almost prophetic. If there's one thing that I have, I can say, sometimes the best things I can say is really just one of perspective, not of this is. It's just a perspective. We, as you know, we have four children, four boys, and we've raised them in what we can say now is a prior generation. When we raised our kids in that time, it was not now. See, what's different now, and I'll touch on this a little bit later, what is different now, it is unapologetic, in your face, they want your kids. It wasn't like that when we raised our kids. It just wasn't. One of the things that I'm supposed to do if I'm really good at my job, I am paid to be paranoid. That might seem odd to you, but that is literally one of my, I could say, if I'm good at it, I am. If I'm not that, I'm really not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Because my job as a counselor, in a sense, is to look after your interest and think through all the possible things that could go wrong that you don't want to think about it because you just think it's going to work out perfectly, but I'm trying to protect you and avoid all the contingencies that you just don't want to discuss. So I have to be paranoid and project out what I think is possible until it proves that it's not. And then as facts roll in, I get to, in a sense, deal with it as it comes. I don't think I'm being paranoid to say that the entire culture has shifted with respect to parental influence over children such that it is not really being apologized for that they think that they are the ones that can tell your kids what to do. They're not yours. I don't think I'm being paranoid about it. It's fascinating to me. So one of the things, I, I'm telling you more about me in a sense, but we're just having a little bit of fun. So I was with the children back in the children's church. And see, one of the things that I do, just what I do, is I, I didn't realize this over time, you know, over the years, but I, I've done a lot of negotiation. I do a lot of persuasion in a sense. And one of the things I had to learn, and I try to hold true to this, is that when you negotiate with somebody, there's somebody on the other side of the table, of course, literally or figuratively, and... When I 
consider what the other person, I'm trying to get in the head and understand, but one of the things that I, I try and assume, and if I, if I fail in this, I'm really setting myself up for failure. I have to assume that the person on the other side of the table is highly intelligent, incredibly cunning, and entirely strategic. I just assume that. Because a good negotiator is going to want to kind of diffuse all of that sensibility and think that I'm in a better, stronger position than I really am. So I'm with the children back there. Josh, if you could put that first slide up. And we did this. Let's talk strategy. And I talked about strategy in the context of military. I'm sure you're wondering, what the heck am I doing with your kids? But look, we play board games. This is innocuous. I mean, it's a board game. Happens to be war-themed and focus. But I just explained it this way because, well, for the boys, it's super easy. It's like, well, okay, how do I win? I mean, it, like, there's a score. I want to win. That's what boys do. So I just put this thing up. I said, let's talk about strategy. I said, you know, because in a board game, like this, in a sense, is mocking up, what you do in a board game is you have certain missions that are going to accomplish certain strategic objectives that are ultimately designed to win, right? Pretty simple. Kids are like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's for the boys with, you know, the notion of guns and explosions makes it even simpler. But let's talk strategy. So in my mind, I just told you in my real kind of vocation, I have to assume that the other side is strategic, cunning, and incredibly intelligent. They don't do anything that doesn't make sense. It might not make sense to me because they're trying to confuse me, but they have an objective. So I said, okay. So I just talked to them about strategy. So if your kids came back to you this while ago and they talked to you about strategy, now you know where it came from. It came from me. So next slide, Josh. Thank you very much. So then after I talked, I said, well, there's a strategy here. And I said, so, okay, we're talking about strategy. I said, and I put this up and I said, this is an example of something. If you go to a carnival, you know, they're shooting games and you, you take shots at different targets and the targets have point values and you're like, yeah, 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 guns, guns, guns. That's great. And I, my question was very simple. I said, so if you, and I said, oh, look, look at this picture. I said, there are on, on this, there are different targets. There's some that are worth, oh, as you can see, 35 points, 50 points, 100, 500. And I just say, so if you were playing this game and you were trying to win, I say, what target would you shoot at? Everybody, 500. I mean, you know, that little one kind of in the middle, that red dot. I think they're not going to shoot for a 25-point target. They're going to shoot for a 500-point target. I mean, it was like simple in the kid's mind. So I said to them, okay. All you're telling me now is that the target you're shooting on is of the highest value. I said, let's talk about that. The target that is typically being shot at is a high value target. So then I said to them, almost not the same words, because, you know, they're kids. I said, you know, it's interesting to me that the enemy seems to be kind of focused on you. 
Do you ever ask yourself why? I mean, I, I said that somewhat rhetorically, of course. I said, why? And we just went through an exercise of strategy. We talked about this, high-value targets, and now it's like, oh, maybe kids are a little bit of a target. Why? Oh, you can say it's an accident. I would hope that you're a little bit more strategic than that as a negotiator. Or you could say to yourself, huh, now I may not fully understand this, but what would be a reasonable inference from the facts as they are, not what I want them to be, is that uh, maybe the kids are the whole point. Maybe there's something of this generation that is brewing and the enemy knows that, oh, they're going to have an impact. It's not as if there's no precedent in the Bible. It's all right there. I'm not here to convince you of that. I'm just saying, hmm, it interests me. So, remember we're talking about a safe harbor? Homes, marriage, children. I gave you a potential strategic objective that is in play of why this is a focus of the enemy. Do I know that for a fact? No, I don't. But I still have to deal with what is in front of me. And because it's a safe harbor, I don't have to really apologize for saying, let's look about it. Let's talk about it. So that's what we're going to do today. So let's talk about the home first. Because we are going to get somewhat practical. I can't go into excruciating detail but I can hit something that is on my heart for each of these topics. What the home, I believe all of you would agree with me, what the home represents may not be what we want it to be in the fullness of it, but it, we all would love for it to be a refuge. A refuge. There are enough battles that you fight as soon as you exit your door and go off to work to whatever other context. And when you come home... I think we all, in an ideal sense, would love it to be a refuge. What we get to experience here on a Sunday is fantastic, and we're intentional about what it can represent, what it can be to all who enter in. I said, but let's not ignore the fact that the home is where you live. The home is where you are six plus days a week, and while we have a desire to impact your home through teaching, exhortation, discipleship even, we don't have authority in your home. We don't. That is your domain of which you are primarily responsible and have authority for. Sure, you can invite authority in. That's true. But you are the authority in your home where you live six plus days a week. And the reason why I'm saying six plus days is you could think, wow, you know, I, I get to go to church and experience great things, which we trust you do. But it doesn't change the fact that the home is still a major part of your life where you live, where you get, in a sense, where you get to recreate. And the attack plan if I were to disrupt that so that it would not be a refuge, it's pretty simple. And this hasn't changed a whole lot. 
It's not everything, but it explains a lot of things. My attack plan is just so in fear, uncertainty, and doubt. This is not new. 2 Corinthians 10.4 and 5. You've heard this verse a number of times. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. There's a lot of people that gravitate towards that because it's warfare, to be sure, and it's spiritual. Not saying you shouldn't think about it, but let's move on. Casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I can't think of a verse, which is that second part, verse 5, that is more practical than that. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's about as practical as you can get. Why? Because the battlefield that exists is here. It's the battlefield of the mind. And I'm going to take something off of you very quick. The fact that you thought it isn't the problem. That is not the problem. It's what you do in entertaining it or rejecting. That's the cutting edge. Like, you know, I can be as real as I want with you, I think. So I'm going to tell you something just to prove the point. So, and sometimes I, I don't know where, in, in my experience, I do know sometimes it's, you know, what you were exposed to, the environment you were in, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm just going to tell you one thing that happened to me years ago. So there was one time that as I was getting ready for bed, I'm just sitting on the side of my bed. I wasn't doing anything spiritual, I can assure you that. Although sleep is pretty spiritual. I had running in my head profanity. I'm like kind of bothered by that. You know, I mean, you know, you think, well, I'm kind of, kind of a good person, kind of a Christian person, you know, and, and I got profanity running in my head. And I'm like, uh, hmm, what's going on? Just telling you what like it is. The fact that it's in my head is not the problem. Like, it appeared in my head. So I was like, okay, we're not dealing with this. Oh, we are dealing with this, but we're not accepting this. So I sat there, <laughs> put my hand on my head, and I'm just like, I take authority in the name of Jesus. I ever just reject profanity and every, you know, just, and I just like, no. And it stopped. So there are many thoughts that you have enter into your brain it's not you. I'm just taking that off for you right now. But what you do in entertaining it slash accepting it, now that is the question. Which is why this verse, you're casting down arguments. You are bringing every thought into captivity because it's the mind. This is, okay. During worship, 
I was enjoying worship, talking about the goodness of God, singing about the goodness of God. And I remembered a situation years and years ago. This is probably 20-some years ago now. And it was with my business. And it was a struggle to start my business. And I, in a sense, gotten established. And then I had a main client. And then the main client, you know, it was in the legal field. So, and it happens. The client left. And I was quite, just being very honest about it, I was quite devastated by that because, and here now the argument came in. And I entered, the thought came into my head and I had to deal with it. And the thought was, you don't have a business anymore. It's in my head. And now what? Discouraging, yes. Didn't want this event to happen, yes. But it is. Not what I want it to be. I have to deal what is. And so I sat down and I thought about it. Because this is like, as, this is where it gets real. Casting down arguments. Well, I had an argument in my head that said I had no business. So you can do self-pity as long as you want. And I did for a little bit, being very honest. But then I had in my office a guitar. And I picked up the guitar. I didn't feel like it. I didn't even know if it would make any difference. And I started to play and I started to sing about how awesome he was. I'm dealing with an argument. There's a very big difference between dealing with an argument here versus dealing what you perceive to be as solving your situation. These are two entirely separate things. You are called to deal with the arguments, deal with anything that desires to set itself high above the knowledge of Christ. You are called to deal with that. You are not called necessarily to deal with the situation. So I did that. I mean, I'm crying, I'm weeping, I'm playing, I'm singing. Wasn't, I'm sure it didn't sound very good. But it was all of my heart of what I was proclaiming to him. And I'm sure you would like to know, yes, it did resolve, not immediately. But it did resolve in him bringing a bigger, more profitable client. And the, the reason why I thought of that is just, God, you're good. You are good. And I, don't, I, don't, I didn't sit here self-analyzing you know, after it happened of, what would have happened if I didn't do that? No, I'm not. You're just dealing with the problem that's on your doorstep, which is there is an argument in your head that is saying to think a certain way that is contrary to what you're believing. That's why it's an argument. I encourage you to, when these situations arise, to be disagreeable. To be disagreeable. Just because an argument appears in your head doesn't mean you have to agree with it, accept it, live by it. The battlefield of mine. 
Oh boy. Just one other thing about the home. Because it's a real issue. This is where you live. This is where I desire for you to be able to recreate in. And what is very easy is for, because all of us self-analyze, all of us assess kind of where we are in our walk and our faith, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes we quite, we quite frankly don't really feel qualified. We don't really feel like we're in a good place. So I'm going to be, step, I may step on your toes, but I still need to tell you a truth about this issue. You don't get to call time out. What do I mean by that? Parents, or if you're not married, if you're single, you govern your home. We all go through seasons where we don't feel the most qualified, spiritual. We feel like there's something that in us that just needs to be dealt with, repaired, etc., etc., etc. But you don't get to call time out and say, time out. I need to go and deal with myself, and can we just put a pause on everything that's going on? That's just not the way it is. If you, I would encourage you not to, and this doesn't ignore the fact that, that people sincerely need help from oppression, et cetera, et cetera. This doesn't ignore that fact. But this is where wartime versus peacetime is a distinctly different mentality. In wartime, right, if you're on the battlefield versus the hospital, one of those situations, you're still in the fight. So if you're self-identifying as a hospital culture, then you're basically saying, I can't possibly be on the battlefield. Happens, but not as frequent as you think. In a more common situation, yes, you've been hit. Yes, you're carrying a wound, and you need to be Strengthen. Yes, we all are like that, but you don't get to call time out because the enemy, sadly, because the enemy is pretty strategic, the enemy says, wow, look, they're kind of weak. Maybe we should attack. If you wanted to win, that's exactly what you would do. So don't expect the enemy to play by different rules. And I'm not trying to here to say that this is your life. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that this is the reality of the war that we get to engage in because you still have responsibilities in your home and to your children. The goal that you're after, which is why it is such a battlefield, the goal that the enemy is after is to disrupt it as a place of refuge because if it is a place of refuge, there is peace. And peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is an artifact of having, you know, from the throne room of God, through the authority that is legitimate, where he can usher in his kingdom into your home. And not only will you benefit because you get to experience, just like we're in worship today, you get to experience just the goodness of God and the peace that comes with it. Not only that, but also when somebody who doesn't have, doesn't even understand what peace is like, they enter you and like, wow, I feel good. 
And you can think about warfare a lot of different ways. Homes are that. When this church was planted, that was a form of warfare because it's like we're trying to establish a beachhead in this community, and there was stuff that was just like, there are no rules. It's warfare. You're just trying to establish something. But once it's established, then people benefit, and your homes are like that. You're on the front lines. And if you're willing to accept that, then you acknowledge the fact that you still need to be healed, shored up, etc., etc. But at the same time, you're still in the fight. And that's an attitude of looking at what is versus what you want it to be. So I, I leave you on this topic. We're going to go through the others much faster. Nehemiah 6.15 and 16. As you know, Nehemiah, the context of this verse is that he was called to rebuild the walls. But prior to the walls being built, they were under attack. They were being ridiculed, in a sense, trying to convince that it was a fool's mission. They were under attack such that they had to build and be ready to fight at the same time. It's basically what I'm trying to tell you. And it says this. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elu, in 52 days, when all our enemies heard, and enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. I love this verse for this reason specifically, that prior to the wall being built, they were fighting inside their borders. Once the wall was completed, the enemy lost their confidence because now they were going to take the fight outside their borders. And the enemy knew that. That is as good a picture of a home, a church, a community as I can think. That yes, it's a struggle because there is opposition to ensuring that the walls around the community or family for protection, there is a period of time where you are exposed until the wall is completed. And that is a challenge, and it is a fight. But once the wall is completed and the gates are set into place, the enemy lost their confidence. That's what's at stake. It is no small thing. So that's your home. If you're willing to accept the season that is. Now marriage, I wasn't intending to talk too much about marriage because we've had a whole series about marriage, so go listen to that again. But I will say this, because I intended to. The attack plan for marriage is to divide. And we, while we all know that, I think it's more important for couples and families to understand this principle. And this principle we got to actually bring out. We were in Hawaii visiting my family because we had a family reunion, but the other thing we did was just, in a sense, early celebration of my parents' 60th wedding anniversary. That was pretty cool. And we had a dinner, and after the dinner, we took the time just to have individuals speak words to thank them and to affirm them for their 60 years of marriage. And the overwhelming theme that came out was just to thank them 
because they've paved the way. They've paved the way for me and my brothers as their children. They've paved the way for their grandchildren, and they've paved the way for their great-grandchild, and one more to come. There is a cascading impact of a family. That's what's at stake. There are things, and this is something I told my parents when I had a chance to say something to them, and I told them this. This is something I felt personally. Some of the things that I am able to do that some people say that I can do pretty well, it's because of them. It's not because of me. It isn't. They made that possible. I've also said this. You can see me and you can experience what I do at some level. I say, but you don't even know who I am unless you know my parents. You don't. You might think you do, but you don't really know me until you know where I came from. And the one thing I, will, I wanted to say to honor my parents, they have done many things that myself and my brothers and my children and my grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, have benefited from. But one of the things, many things that parents do, you don't teach, in a sense, by word. It's more by action. And one of the things they modeled for me was that they showed me by their own personal walk and sacrifice that to serve God was worth sacrificing for. You can say that in words, but I saw that demonstrated for me as they lived their life and worked out in their call in the ministry that he was worth sacrificing their life for. And for that, I will forever be grateful. So marriage as an institution, there's a lot at stake, and it's a cascading impact. And there are realities to that, but I just want to encourage you that that's what, it's, that's what is at stake. Okay, just in a couple of minutes. Children. I've talked a little bit about children, about what I perceive as a strategy and the reason why they're under attack. And I'll just say this one very short thing about it, because this represents to me a change. See, classically, the way you get at the children, because children are under the authority of the parents, under God. And there's a, a legitimate chain of authority that comes from the throne room of God you know, over the children. Classically, classically, the way to circumvent all of that is to induce in the children to rebel against legitimate authority to align under illegitimate authority. That's what rebellion is. Parents have been dealing with that issue from, like, I'm sure the beginning of time. But the game has changed a little bit. And what's changed? See, now, the attack plan appears to be to usurp authority. They're not going necessarily at the kids and trying to foment a rebellion. Now they're going, in a sense, further up the chain 
and trying to usurp parents' authority to get them to abdicate their authority. Now it's like, whose kids are they? Is it yours? Or is it theirs? You see, if parents do not abdicate their authority, then the traditional tack becomes the only option, which is to incite rebellion, to have them volu- kids voluntarily move out of authority. But they're, in a sense, been trying to shortcut the process by having you abdicate. They're your kids. Don't apologize for that. They are yours. God gave them under your protection, under your authority, under his. It is your responsibility and no one else's. Do not abdicate that. You have my permission to be entirely disagreeable on that point. It's war. That should change your perspective on what you'd be willing to do and unwilling to compromise. And I encourage you in that. I'm going to end with this story because I've tried to paint a picture that creates some level of urgency, but certainly I don't want you to perceive from this discussion that, wow, this is like really bleak. Yeah, it's tough, only because the stakes are high. So we were young parents, well, maybe not that young parents. We had four boys, as you know, and sometimes I get to use them as examples, so I do. So then, my youngest, you know, so he's our fourth kid, and, you know, you're just doing the stuff, and you're just like, oh, man, getting to bed is like the biggest win ever because now, well, you get to do other things. And I'm not going to tell you something that you don't know, but Ben was maybe not the easiest one when it came to like, things had to be a certain way. You know, so to put him to bed, you know, was, was a little bit of a process. So one evening, I'm going through the process. It wasn't like it was my turn. It's just, our, he's our kid. And I'm putting it to bed, and you're like, oh, man, yeah, he's, he's good, you know. And I'm stepping out of the room, close the door, and then this thought comes in. What was that card on the table? And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I'm sure it's fine. It's fine. Like, I'm tired. I mean, he's in bed. I mean, like, and I just walk two more steps away from his door, and the thought comes again. It's like, what was, what was that card on the table? I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. I go back in the room. <laughs> And I go to the table, and I see the card. I pick it up. It's like, oh, yeah, I don't want this here. Picked it up, went out. And I use this story to tell you, there are certainly many things that you feel like, like, I I don't know. Like, I mean, there's so much. I said, from the perspective of God, it is your business to know. And because it is your business to know, because he put you in that position over them to, to steward over and protect them and nurture them and encourage them, it is your business to know and make no mistake, the Holy Spirit will help you. I tried my best in that scenario to not listen, but 
He is there to help you. He is the ultimate counselor. It is your business to know. So I wanted to encourage you that when it comes to parenting. Now, I'm sure there was a lot. I apologize. We, well, I'm not really going to apologize. There was a lot, but we're going to end in this way. We're going to take communion. Why are we taking communion? Because I, I wanted to end with the truth of what you have, not what you don't have. So if you would, to pick up right in front of you, if you're a believer, this communion is open to all of you. And I will lead you in, in this because this is to be done in remembrance of him, not only of him as a person, but more importantly, to remember what he has won. I spoke about war. The reality of war is that he has won the war. There are battles to be won. There are skirmishes that we need to navigate, but he has won the war. And what you have, which this represents, is what he's won. So, this represents the price he paid physically on his body, which was broken. Would you take it with me? Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, so by his wounds we are healed. That's what he's done. He's won. He's accomplished. And this, this cup, represents his blood. This speaks on your behalf. This is the lens by which he views you. Fully justified. Holy. Blameless. Without any blemish. This is the lens by which he views you. Thank you, Lord. Let us drink. He is for you. He is one. He has won for all time the war. And we get to partner with him in the battles that are on our doorstep. Amen.